Well, welcome back to the Practice Makes Faithful podcast. We are super excited. This is episode three. My name is Ben Patterson. I'm sitting here with Paul Hugobart, and we are looking forward to diving into this conversation. If you're new with us, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Paul, how are you doing? I'm doing fairly well this morning, you know, for a Monday. Yeah. I mean, it's not so bad. It's Monday for us anyway. I don't know when you guys uh, may be listening to this, but uh, but a Monday, and it's a pretty good Monday so far. Groovy. Yeah. Groovy. Well, I am excited to continue this conversation that we are here, uh, that we're in on this series that we've been in called A Better Story. A Better Story. This is connected with our sermons here at Grace Chapel. So if you're interested in going and checking out these sermons, we would encourage you to do that as well. You can check out our Grace Chapel channel for that. But we're going to continue this conversation. We are on part three of this. And uh, let's, so let's go ahead and dive in. Yeah, so, um, you know, I think last week we talked a little bit about the fact that the first two uh, messages and the first two, I think, episodes of the podcast, uh, there, there was a lot of connection. And certainly that's true because each one of these episodes has been building mm-hmm. on, on mm-hmm. each other, you know, in, in, in a way kind of to create this foundation of understanding so that we can yeah. process some thoughts that maybe we haven't uh, given much attention to before. And I think that's true for a lot of us, certainly uh, in society and culture, even in the church. Um, we, we haven't tried to understand kind of the prevailing winds of what, mm-hmm. what, uh, what we're facing at this point in time. And so um, we've looked at a number of different concepts, one of them being secular humanism. Um, and I'll just read the definition again real quickly mm-hmm. for secular humanism. It's, um, it's, it's humanism with regard in, in, in particular to the belief that humanity is capable of morality and self-fulfillment without the belief in God. And that's, that's really big because that is kind of one of the prevailing winds of uh, of our current cultural age yeah. is, is there's this belief that we don't need God to be either moral, right, in one way, and that's, that's a big deal, or to find self-fulfillment. So we're capable of uh, determining what ethics look like, mm-hmm. what our values ought to be, and then as well, we, we don't need God to find meaning, purpose, or personal value either. It's kind of the belief of, you know, that's, that's what secular humanism is all about. And, we spent kind of the first week, I think, talking about how that really has become the predominant worldview in the Western world. And, it, and it's led to things like postmodernism. Uh, so we talked about, you know, the three pillars of postmodernism, that you can make your own truth, which, again, that really is, that is connected directly to this, this secular human, humanism. Um, so you can make your own truth. You can define your own meaning. And, and what matters most in life is that you're happy. So, uh, you know, those are kind of some of the ideas we've touched on as we've tried to understand, um, again, this current cultural wind, the time that we find ourselves in. um, And and that's big, I think, for us. We need to understand that in the church because, uh, as I pointed out last week and even the week before, um, if we're going to try to reach culture, we need to understand what's going on in culture and how the people around us are being influenced and, and what they're thinking but also we have to understand that that's gonna, it's gonna have an impact on us. So that's kind of where we've been the last couple of weeks and that will affect, uh, that will affect where we're going this week that's as good. well. That's good. If you're new, if you hadn't been following along with us, I think we would encourage you, go back, go check out those past two episodes of our yes, podcast. most definitely. Because you are kind of jumping in in the middle of this journey. Yep. But if you've been following along with us, well then let's, let's keep diving in. Mm-hmm. So. Paul, you said yesterday in, in the message, you said that secular, that secular humanism and the postmodern worldview have really, like, they've made some really big promises, and yet they have kind of let us down on that. Right. They've been, they've unfulfilled those. Can you kind of explain that a little bit and maybe give us an example of what you mean by that? 
Yeah, so that's kind of the progression we're in the last two weeks trying to understand uh, these worldviews in a sense. Um, and then, you know, this week trying to say, okay, what, what then are the implications of that? Or what are some of the promises that have been made, the things that we've even believed? And so, um, so let's, let's reconnect because this, this actually connects directly to the three pillars of, of postmodern thought. Um, so in a sense, I would say the big promise, if we could just summarize it in one statement, uh, the big promise of secular humanism or the, or the postmodern worldview that, that so many people embrace is that if you go after your own truth, okay, so go after your own truth, if you define your own meaning, then what that will lead to is true personal happiness. Mm-hmm. Right, so that's, I think that's the big promise or that's, you know, if you say there are a bunch of big promises, they, they could all be wrapped up or summarized in that one, that one sentence. So if, if you go after your own truth, whatever it is, you live your truth, um, define your own meaning in life. You don't need anybody else to define that meaning for, for you. And if you can do those two things and, and if you can fit those together the way, uh, you know, kind of in a neat postmodern way, um, at that point in time, you'll, you'll be truly personally happy. Um, so, so that's the promise. The promise, yeah. Uh, the, the difficulty with that is, is you know, you don't have to search very far. Um, you know, I, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but there is this thing called the happiness index. It's, mm-hmm. it's, I mean, it's crazy that to think, you know, we, we measure everything in society nowadays, and one of the things that we measure is how happy are people, um, and and the happy happiness of people all around the world is is measured, and here in the United States, it's measured as well. We've been measuring, I think, happiness for almost a century now, mm-hmm. uh, kind of taking these values, figuring out by asking some questions uh, through surveys, figuring out how happy are people truly. You know, it's really interesting that um, here in the United States, happiness, the happiness on the happiness index, the score that we had, the value that we achieved as, as, a, as a nation, we peaked somewhere in the 1950s. Okay. Okay, so we're talking about 70 plus years ago yeah. now. So early 1950s, in fact, um, we peaked in the 1950s. And so what that means is that, that here in the United States, uh, on the happiness index, we have been in decline since the 1950s. And it's, it's, you know, every year or so, we seem to lose just a little bit on the happiness index. Our, our score goes down just a little bit. Now, you'll have some years where it kind of, you know, moves around just a little bit and maybe we gain just a little bit, but then the trend is, is downward for 70 years. Uh, so much so that um, there, there was a, an article written in the, the Chicago Tribune in, in 2006. Now, keep in mind 2006, that's now, what, 16 years ago? Mm-hmm. Um, so 16 years ago, we've continued to decline since then, but six, 16 years ago, uh, kind of the, 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 the lead of this article was that, um, that in the 1950s, although life was not better in the way we would define better, you know, we didn't have a lot of the modern conveniences that even by 2006 we had. Lots of houses still didn't have refrigeration, certainly not air conditioning, mm-hmm. even indoor plumbing some places. You know, I mean, there are a lot of the things, that, the conveniences that we really feel like make life better today. Certainly the internet wasn't around, all of those things. So we'd say, well, those things might make life better, um, but people were happier. Yeah. So life wasn't better is the conclusion of the article, yet people were happier. So flip that, here we are with all these things that should, in a sense, <clears throat> at, least, at least by our thinking, would make life better, yeah. but we're not happier. We're not happier at all, which, you know, I, I think... Um, so are, do you suggest that, that that has to do with these postmodern yeah, okay. 
promises that haven't delivered. Great, I'm, I'm glad you asked that question. Yeah, because you know that's actually a time where we start to see a shift in the way that society starts to embrace the ideas of postmodernism more fully instead of embracing the, the, the Christian worldview. Mm-hmm. So that's actually the time where we start to see in some of our larger cities. So we talked about the idea of being Christian or post-Christian or embracing mm-hmm. Christian worldview or post-Christian worldview last week. That's about the time that we start to see some of our larger cities really start to move to embracing a, pro, a post-Christian worldview, whether that be yeah. cities in the Northeast, uh, cities out West in particular. Yeah. You know, so some of these cities start to embrace this post-Christian worldview, and, and now things, uh, you know, now, now things start to change. We start to see that, as, you know, in society as a whole as well. So, yeah, we start to process differently. So it's almost you can line those two things up. The move to embracing a more post-Christian worldview or a more secular worldview um, as opposed to a Christian worldview and the beginning of this decline in, in happiness. It's interesting when you say that. I was listening to a podcast recently with uh, John Mark Comer, who yeah. we've referenced a couple times in mm-hmm. here, and he was just kind of talking about the state of his city, Portland. Yeah, and, out west. You know, yep. Portland is a city who that was been kind of proclaimed as being this secular utopia, right, yes. for quite a while. And as he describes it, I don't, I'm not from Portland. I've never been there, so I don't know know this personally. But as he described it, he talked about how there was really a great sense of arrogance and pride mm. in the city of being the city. It's really been maybe one of the first that we've really considered fully post-Christian. Right. And in the past year or so, with everything that's went down at Portland, he's kind of talked about how it has really humbled the city to an extent where you've seen these yeah. these promises haven't really delivered. And, right. and we know in stories that we've seen that, that Portland has had some struggles recently, yes. has had some problems, and uh, it's just an interesting microcosm, I think, to see that. I, I think where you have this thing. city that's been living that way for quite a while, and the promises aren't really delivering. And I don't want to undermine everything that's happened right. there, and that there's been some real uh, justice issues that people have been acting sure. on that have been good, but it does just show this picture of this city that hasn't, the promises haven't fulfilled yes. in the way that a lot of people thought they would. Yeah, and I think, um, boy, even the word you used there kind of, and, and I, maybe John Mark Comer used that word as well, but the kind of the, the embracing this arrogant belief almost that we are, I mean, that's, that's the idea of being progressive, right? Yeah. We're progressing, we're always moving forward. Uh, and certainly, you know, that, that idea, you know, which Portland wants to embrace, Portland wants to embrace or does embrace, you know, maybe some more cities on, on, uh, on the West Coast do, Northeast we talk about as well. You know, those cities embraced that idea you know, years ago, we might have been able to look and say, well, it was just those places. But now, really, that's, that's, that's everywhere. It's pervasive. Mm-hmm. You know, even among our, our younger generations, you know, and I think it's important for older generations to realize, you know, as we've talked about this move into post-Christian thought, um, you know, I think some older generations are resistant to believing that's really true about everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so demographically, it, it may not be true about uh, an, an older generation in the deep south here where we live. But I can tell you, I mean, Atlanta is quickly becoming, where we live, is quickly becoming a, a post-Christian city uh, in many ways. And I think it's happened very, very quickly in some, mm-hmm. in some of these other areas where, um, you know, even in the Bible Belt where, uh, where, Christian, where the Christian worldview is holding on for a time. Um, you know, again, b- back to that idea of arrogance. Um, you know, I, I can remember, um, you know, certainly, 
in my younger years growing up, even the conversation about how life, in, life expectancy in the United States was increasing year upon year, only going up, only going up, only going up, right? So year upon year, you could see people living longer, having uh, you know, a larger life expectancy. And, and it's interesting that even, you know, I think about three, four years before COVID hit, so that was 2020, I think somewhere 2016, 2017. Uh, so before the pandemic, we actually started, started to see life expectancy in the United States had hit its peak and was actually starting to trend downward again, which is really wild. So all these kind of promises of what, what would be a secular utopia will we'll live forever here on earth. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we can make these places like Portland or San Francisco into these secular utopias and life is gonna be better here than anywhere else. Again, those promises have largely gone unfulfilled. And uh, you know, yeah. let me just give, um, you know, the way I try to characterize this this past weekend um, is, is to kind of point out some of the areas in which actually uh, the postmodern worldview or the secular, uh, the secular humanist perspective has led directly to some, uh, you know, you could call them side effects, consequences, whatever, but, but things that have truly made us less happy in, mm -hmm. in many ways, you know? And so um, if you look at kind of the natural, um, the natural end point for embracing the postmodern worldview, again, it's my truth, um, my meaning, my happiness. I mean, it's kind of pushed us into this place where we're embracing this radical individualism. So everything's about me. It yeah. all centers upon me. I mean, I'm most important. Everybody else comes second. I come first. Um, you know, so it's moved us to this place where we've embraced radical individualism. Yeah. Um, but what that's led to is that, I mean, and this should come as no surprise, right? Is, is this place where we have these deep relational deficits. Um, you know, we've list, lifted ourselves up and in the process, we've completely created chaos within uh, a system of community that we could have, you know, so we could have relationships with other people, but, but not by the way we're living. Yeah. You know, um, so uh, you, you can't be all about yourself and have healthy relationships with others. And so we have right now, I mean, we're at this place where we know we've got deep relational deficits. Um, we have as well, again, I mean, this, this should come as no surprise, a loneliness epidemic. I mean, there are lots of studies. You can go out and Google this if you want. I mean, just Google loneliness epidemic and you'll see a bunch of studies will rise to the top in your Google search. <laughs> and you'll see very quickly the struggle that we have with loneliness in, in this nation right now, where people have more friends on Facebook than they could ever imagine, but fewer real life friends mm -hmm. than they, they could ever imagine mm -hmm. as well. And so loneliness epidemic, I mean, we talked about with John Verveke, this idea of we've got this existential meaning crisis where uh, people are looking around saying there has to be more to life. Where's this meaning? Where, I, I don't feel like life has any meaning, any value, any purpose. But again, the, the secular humanist worldview, which again has all these promises, you'll, you'll make your own meaning and, and that you'll find more meaning in making your own meaning than you ever would with a meaning that was passed down to you from a creator. Again, just, just failing in many, many ways. And then of course, as you've already touched on somewhat, um, man, we've got just, just radically divided society right now. And so it has led a lot of people to, to declare, to look around and say, wait a minute, there's got to be a better way. Yeah. There has to be a better way than this. Yeah. I think as Christians, we would say there certainly is a better there way. There is a better way. That Jesus does offer a better way. These other promises, it's, it's failed. It's breaking down. It's, it's showing itself that it's not working. So... But one of the things that's interesting about this is we're kind of talking about something that's pretty a, a macro level issue, right? Yeah. Like this is a cultural 
movement of right. our culture at large embracing post-Christianity, yes. post-modernism, secular humanism. So like, what does that look like? What does mm -hmm. change look like? Um, yeah, how, how, would, how would any change come about to embrace the better story? Yeah, okay, so, um, you know, I think there's a reason we've been talking about the need to understand what's happening in the culture around us as, as a church, as a, mm -hmm. as a Christian people. We need to understand what's happening in the culture around us. One, because how do we engage with a culture that we don't even understand anymore? You know, we talked yeah. about, I think in the first week we talked about, you know, missionaries, when they're getting ready to head into a culture they're not familiar with, will actually learn about that culture before they go mm -hmm. into that, mm -hmm. you know, foreign place and, and try to convert people. And, 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 you know, we're at this place right now where um, if we truly believe that we live in a Christian culture, the reality is, um, you know, I think engaging with people who are embracing a post-Christian culture and a post-modern worldview, it's going to seem like dealing with people who speak a whole other language, you know. So we have to understand the culture so we can engage with the culture so that we can relate. Um, but then also, you know, kind of uh, we've got to be careful because, um, you know, it, it can make an impact on us, obviously. So we've talked about that as, re as already, but as well, we need to understand culture so that we know how to respond to culture. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think that's a big piece that we, we haven't talked about much yet. We've talked about not letting culture make an impact on us. We've kind of talked about engaging with culture, but we need to take that a step further. Um, there's, there's this really cool passage in First, Chron First Chronicles 12, um, verse, verse 32, I believe. So um, you know, in that chapter, we see this detailing. So there's, you know, um, there's this guy named David in the Old Testament who'd been anointed by this prophet named Samuel, wasn't yet king of Israel because there was another king of Israel at that point in time. So there was King Saul. King Saul had been unfaithful. Samuel had anointed David. Obviously, that didn't go along too well with Saul, who was still king. And so there's now this rift between these two guys that actually used to have a, a pretty good relationship, it seems. Um, and so there comes this moment where uh, different uh, tribes in Israel or even portions of tribes are determining who they're casting their lot with, so, so to speak. And so uh, some stay with Saul and others come over to David and recognize that he is the, the king that or is the coming king has been anointed by Samuel. And so they start to cast their lot with him. And there, there are, there's this group of guys, 200 of them from, uh, from this tribe called Issachar, men from Issachar is just, that's just how they're described. They're men from Issachar um, who, who uh, when they're described in a very short sentence are described this way. Okay. So there were these men from Issachar who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. That's it. That's the only line we get about them. They understood the times, so they somehow they understood what was happening in the world around them, but because they understood what was happening in the world around them, which is kind of where we've been, yep. we've been trying to understand the world around us, but now the second piece out of that is what are we supposed to do mm -hmm. in response to That's the good. world around us? Um, and so, uh, so yesterday I, I tried to give, um, it, it was difficult in, in a limited amount of time, so we get to flesh this out a little bit more here. Um, I think maybe a, a 30,000 foot snapshot of the last 500 years of church history, which, you know, I mean, try to put those two together and that's, that's a, a complicated situation, right? 30,000 feet, 500 years. Um, but I think it is helpful to kind of understand the, I think, the way the church has engaged over the last 500 years. And it leads us to understand also what was most important at certain times, or at least the shape of the conversation 
Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and so, so to some degree, we're looking in the rear view mirror, but, but when we do this, we're also trying to look out the front windshield as well. Yeah. So to say, here's where we've been and here's the conversation that has been most dominant within the church and as the church is engaged, um, but, but now if we look out the front windshield, there's another conversation we need to be having. So 500 years ago, just a little over 500 years ago, there's a guy named Martin Luther. Uh, he was a Catholic monk who actually got to this place where he had 95 things, um, 95 points that caused him to disagree with the Catholic church. As, you know, the Lutheran church, Martin Luther. And so yep. Martin Luther went and nailed those 95 disagreements. We call those the 95 theses. Uh, he nailed those to the door of this, this abbey, you mm -hmm. know, basically saying, here are the reasons I'm no longer lining up with the things that you've been teaching. Some things like indulgences were part of that, praying to saints. I mean, there are a whole lot of different things where he said, I just can't do this anymore. I, I don't agree. And so, you know, what, what happened out of that is for the next couple hundred years, the dominant conversation uh, because we were still a Christian society, right? I mean, that was happening in Europe, obviously, at that point. Um, but because they were a Christian society, the dominant conversation was why we Protestants aren't like you Catholics. So that was the dominant conversation. Okay, so that was about 1517 that that happened, led all the way into now this migration from Europe over to the United States, uh, the Christianizing of, of this nation in many ways. Um, and so then here, you know, predominantly, uh, colonized by Protestants. There were some Catholics that came over as well, but the conversation in the United States, at least at the Christian level, um, for the last several hundred years has been more along these lines. I could describe it this way, why my Protestant church is better than your Protestant church. Yeah. Okay, and, and, and that, that helps us make sense of conversations like, um, you know, conversations about um, you know, premillennialism, premillennialism versus postmillennialism or mm -hmm. amillennialism, or, you know, here within the restoration movement, you know, one thing that we have been known for is, is, you know, the conversation that centers on why baptism is, you know, either essential to salvation is the way it's been described in the past, or why we would say, no, look, you've got to put a whole lot of emphasis on baptism as part of the conversion process. It's that moment where you pledge your allegiance to God. You know, that, that's an important conversation, but over the last couple hundred years, it's been the conversation where we have looked at other denominations, other churches, and said, this is why our church is better than yours, because we have a better understanding about baptism than you do, right, yeah. by our thinking. So, so just yeah. make sure I'm following. So yeah. like you'd say up to this point, like the dominant conversation has been more like conversation between church denominations, such, yes. right? It's been this conversation of, hey, we're right on this doctrine, you're Doctrinal wrong. Doctrinal issues that divide us. Yeah. That's right. Okay. Mm -hmm. But it is... But it, this is coming from Christians who share yes. at least some central worldview. I mean, there's yes. bigger differences in some things to the others, but generally, That's we're right. people who follow Jesus. But they're having these conversations of doctrinal differences. Yeah, and, and so over the last few hundred years, that conversation actually made sense because most of us were Christians, so we agreed on the big picture. You know, so 500 years ago, for Martin Luther to do what his, he did made perfect sense. That was yeah. the right conversation. For the last 200 years, We've been engaging, I'd say sometimes the wrong conversations, but, but oftentimes the right conversations too to say, okay, you already agree about this, but here are the things we don't agree about. Um, so that's the rear view mirror in a sense. Mm -hmm. so we're looking in the rear view mirror. Now, if we could look out the front windshield for just a minute, um, this is where we start to realize that the conversation that we've had the last 200 years, at least when we use that as a starting point, it's no longer a starting point. Yeah. 
it, it's a complete non sequitur. You know, if you go to somebody who doesn't believe in Jesus and you want to tell them about the meaning, purpose, and value of baptism, and that's where you start the conversation, they're going to look at you and think, what, what in the world are we even talking about? Why, different why are we different talking? worldviews, yeah, right? Like right. approaching it from, yeah. Correct. Okay. Speaking a totally so different language, this, this has no relevance to me whatsoever. And I think that's actually one of the reasons that many non-Christians have determined that Christian, Christianity is not relevant yeah. to their life experience because we have not been engaging on the level of worldview. We've still been engaging or beginning the conversation centered on doctrine, mm-hmm. church issues, as opposed to life issues. And what's really interesting, I mean, you know, you go back to the foundation of the church. Where did they start? I mean, certainly for a time, you know, when they were first engaging and, and you know, the, the question was converting from Judaism to now Judaism with Jesus in a sense, or Jews who were converting to say that Jesus is the Messiah, he's now the fulfillment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they started those conversations on one level, but if you look at when Paul is in Athens, Paul begins his conversation on a whole different level than Peter began his conversation with those who were Jewish and now trying to convince them that he is, that, that Jesus is the Messiah, the fulfillment of all they've been mm-hmm. waiting for. Mm-hmm. Paul actually begins by looking around and saying, look, I see you guys are religious people, all these idols. Let me tell you about this one idol over here, this one to this unknown God. Let me tell you about that God and I know about him. So, you know, you can see the conversation Uh, And missionaries know this. We need to know this as we engage our culture around us, that we are now engaging a a culture who um, who, who, we don't have the same starting point at all. We've got a totally different starting point. What's our new starting point? And I think I could describe it this way. So instead of looking around and saying, let me tell you why the Protestant church is different than the Catholic church. Let me tell you why my Protestant church is better than your Protestant church. You know, we're now at this place where we have to live in such a way that shows that our worldview makes more sense of the reality in which we live. It's a totally different thing, totally different thing. So if we continue to engage uh, the conversation at at these levels that that maybe worked in the past, and again, I'm not, I I don't want to be, you know, C.S. Lewis talks about chronological snobbery. I don't want to be the kind of person that sits here from this this seat and looks backwards and says they were having all the wrong conversations. Again, I'm saying those may Mm -hmm. have been the right conversations at that time, Mm -hmm. but it's no longer the right conversation. Yeah. We live in a different time. Um, so I, I could say as well, you know, um, talked about this a little bit this weekend as well, that, that it's, it, you know, we've got these three false sub-narratives or three false, yeah, sub-narratives. I mean, you know, you've got the big narrative. So you could have the big narrative for us is the Christian worldview. That's one narrative. Then you've got the postmodern worldview. Those are kind of competing big meta-narratives. But there are three kind of false sub-narratives that we have believed, and we've touched on two of those already. Um, you know, that again, if we allow ourselves to believe that the dominant culture in America is still the Christian culture, that, that is a false sub-narrative, false sub-narrative at this point in time. Mm-hmm. We've got to recognize the time we live in. Um, if we allow ourselves to believe another false sub-narrative that, that in a sense that, that, you know, I can live the Christian life while embracing the values of the culture around me, that's another false sub-narrative. Again, we have to realize the way that culture is influencing us. And then the third false sub-narrative that we talked about this weekend is, you know, that, that we believe that um, to some degree that, it, you know, if the church is going to reach into culture, that the church must narrow the gap between church and culture. But I don't think that is all accurately reflective of the time that we live in. In fact, you know, when, when we try to narrow the gap between church and culture, all we do is the church has become more like the culture. So all we do, we just look more like the culture. Mm-hmm. So we think that we're going to make a difference by being just like everybody else and then having some Jesus too. Mm-hmm. You know, it just, it's not going to work. Mm-hmm. So again, 
you know, I, I just want to say unequivocally, what we need right now, we need to live in such a way that shows why the Christian worldview makes more sense of the reality in which we live. You know, and, and to connect that with the, the theme of the message that That's we've good. been in is we have to live in such a way that truly shows the better story. So let's, let's get practical. What is okay. that? What does living that better story look like practically? Okay. So um, if, uh, if kind of what, what has happened or the way that, that, that um, the postmodern view has coalesced in, in the, the type of people we see, uh, at least as products of the postmodern worldview, again, if, if it's led us to this place of radical individualism where everything centers on me, it's all about me, you know, uh, I mean, even think about the selfie phenomenon in that, right? Mm-hmm. And how many people, you know, how many people post selfies all the time? You know, the long arm click and we've got selfie sticks and everything, you know, all these things just show how much culture centers on me at this point in time. You know, I think we as Christ followers, we have to live in, in such a way that elevates self-sacrifice. So, so by living self-sacrificially instead of living in a way that elevates self-indulgence. You know, I think that's the first piece. So we're, we're pushing back in, in a strong way by the way we live on the indulge yourself mantra of, of the culture around us by living self-sacrificially. And, and that's gonna, mm-hmm. I think, raise an awareness among people or at least have people wonder why are you living this way? Because that is so countercultural to the way that so many are living. So I think that would maybe be, um, maybe be the first, but if we could reconnect with, with kind of those, those three pillars, or the, that's the way I've been kind of framing it anyway, these three pillars of postmodern thought. Um, you know, I think we as Christ followers, we, we have to live in such a way that shows, um, I think both through action um, and, 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 and even words, that my truth is no substitute for God's truth. You know, yeah. bottom line. So, <clears throat> you know, it just, it shows the lie of, of the my truth, you know, it, 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 you know, kind of exposes the my truth fallacy hmm. in a sense. So God's truth is what matters most, not my truth. You know, so my opinion, so I, I guess maybe a way of saying that is, if, if there's a time where I disagree with God, God wins <laughs> every time, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, if, uh, if my experience seems to teach me one thing, but the words of Scripture teach me another, I trust the words of Scripture and not my mm-hmm. experience. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's a, that's a place where a lot of Christians have gotten themselves in trouble is by looking around and saying, yeah, but here's what I seem to be seeing with my experience is if we can trust, you know, and it's, it's, it's funny because even, you know, secularism uh, w- will, will point out that you can't really trust your senses. Mm-hmm. Okay, I agree with that. We, we can't trust our senses. We can't trust what we perceive all the time. Uh, we certainly can't trust what we think and feel all the time, but who can we trust as a source of truth? Well, it, it's God. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust God. So whether my experience, my opinion, whatever it is, if, when that tells me different, I'm going to stick with God. So my truth is no substitute for God's truth. Um, and I think the next one in this, you know, my meaning is ultimately meaningless, right? My, yeah. You know, my personal meaning is ultimately meaningless because only God can bestow meaning, purpose, and value. Um, you know, I, that's a tough one, I think, for, for people who have embraced postmodern thought to, uh, to accept, but just again, look at the reality. 
Look, look at the research. Look, you know, go check out John Verveke at the University of Toronto. We may not agree with all of his conclusions, but I agree with his observations mm -hmm. that we are in the middle, in the midst of a, an existential meaning crisis. And the reason we're there is because of postmodern thinking, because of the postmodern worldview, because of secular humanism has led us to the place where we're now sitting right in the middle of an existential meaning crisis. And so at least the research and the observation, if we can accept that, we've got to at least push back on, on something somewhere. And maybe what that means is that God is right. He's the one that bestows meaning, value, and purpose yeah. uh, in life. You know, I think um, then the last pillar in that, again, the, the one about, you know, personal happiness being the target in life, basically. You know, I think if, um, we can push back on it this way to say, if I set personal happiness as my target for living, I'm instead charting a course that will ultimately, ultimately lead to misery. I mean, that's, that's true for so many people. You know, even I think about it this way, it's really wild. The statistics about divorce, um, you know, life after divorce, you know, so many people believe that they're unhappy. So they're unhappy in their current marriage. So what they're going to do is they're going to divorce and then they're going to go and they're going to find happiness in another marriage. And when we come back five years later, we find that nine out of 10 people in self-survey represent that they are not happier than they were before the divorce. I mean, that's wild, 90%. Yeah. So that's just one example, yeah. just one example. But the reality is when, when we pursue our own happiness, it's amazing, we tend to wind up miserable. Mm -hmm. We really do, and mm -hmm. you can see that. I mean, there's so many different examples uh, that point that out. I mean, I don't know how many people remember Howard Hughes. Maybe, maybe the only reason that people would remember Howard Hughes is because Leonardo DiCaprio was in a movie where he played Howard Hughes a number of years ago, but he was this tycoon who had everything, loads of money. Um, you, know, he, uh, you know, he was a guy who sought lots of adventure. He dated all, like all the Hollywood models for a time um, and then became miserable, became this recluse who doped himself up on drugs all the time and ultimately, you know, led to kind of a, you know, a really sad departure from this earth, basically. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's so many stories we could point to. When, when you seek out happiness as your reason for living, that's your purpose for living, it, it kind of ultimately leads, uh, yeah. leads to misery. I guess on a more personal level, you see just the failure in embracing those. those I, the, the same failure that we're seeing from as our culture is embracing this postmodern. Yes. We see it's not living out those results. No. We see that on a personal level yeah. when we embrace those principles Absolutely. too. Absolutely. I think we could all have stories on some level that we could tell about how that's been true. You know, I, I think so. You know, if I could kind of conclude that that piece, here's what I would say. You know, we as Christians, we, we have to live. And again, I said in the message this Sunday, this is a bold statement. And it's a statement that, man, it's going to, it's probably going to anger some folks. I'm not going to love it. But, but I think we as Christians, we have to live in such a way um, that says that the way of Jesus is the right way. And by comparison, everything else is a fraud. I mean, it's a fraud. It's an imposter. There's only one right way. And Jesus was so bold to say that about himself when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so, you know, I think it, it brings us to this place. You know, of course, we, we here at Grace Chapel, we've been praying these, uh, these two prayers, um, Luke 10:2. And then Colossians 4, 2 through 4, or 3 through 4, depending upon how you frame that. 
And really what we're asking for is that God would revive our community, that God would revive us, renew us. We're asking that God would, would raise up workers to go out into the world and share the good news with people who don't know it yet, believing that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, that the problem is the workers, it's not, it's not the harvest. Then we're also asking that God would open these doors in Colossians 4 so that we could proclaim the mystery of Christ. I mean, it's a mystery because people haven't discovered yet. You know, they, 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 they've been pu- trying to puzzle out life. Jesus is the answer, mm-hmm. but they haven't found Jesus yet. So life is a mystery and Jesus is a mystery. And what he brings into that is a mystery. So, you know, it, you know, revival then begins. So we've been praying for revival by praying those prayers. God, open doors for the message. Give us opportunities to share the good news with people. Raise up more workers so we can share the good news, uh, you know, even in, in a broader way than we have before. So we're praying for revival. Um, you know, and, and here's the truth I think about revival, and this is why we need to live in, in such a way in this time, in this moment. It's, it's that because revival begins when the people of God embrace faithfulness to God in a radical way. Hmm. I mean, that's, that's where revival begins. Yeah. So as we kind of come to, as we near a close here, you mentioned embracing faithfulness to God in a radical way. Yeah. Can you just give us an example of what that would look like? What that could look like in someone's life? Yeah. So, um, so I'm going to share a personal example, and I, I, I want to do this in a very humble fashion. I want to try to be as humble as I can in this, because the truth is I'm, I'm just trying to figure this out yeah. as I go along as well. And, and actually, the story I'm going to share, um, I'm going to make myself a little bit vulnerable in sharing this as well. Um, so we've been here uh, in, in North Georgia for almost seven years, six and a half, seven years at this point almost. Um, and it, it's been a really, really wonderful time. I mean, I, I love this church. I love being here. I love these people. In fact, I would say this is, this is uh, one of the most wonderful church experiences I've ever been a part of in my life. Um, about two years in here, uh, into being here, I, I started knowing, noticing that and we moved here from Florida, so mm-hmm. South Florida mm-hmm. as well. Uh, about two years into being here, I noticed that I, I really started to struggle in the winter times. I was having a difficult time in the winter times, and I noticed that maybe the first winter too. But I just thought I'm a little homesick. I'm from South Florida. I mean, the average temperature in you know December and January is 73, 74 degrees for highs. Wow. You know, so we're not. I wasn't really used to 30s and 40s at times, and so that was a little bit of a shock on the system. And I just thought, okay, 10 years in Florida, it's just a transition. I'll, I'll get used to this. Um, by the third year, I realized something's wrong. Something's not going well. In fact, um, I'm struggling. I'm lethargic. Um, I'm irritable all the time during the wintertime. Um, I'm even maybe, and, and you know, I've got a background in mental health counseling, so kind of looking at myself, I, I'm even kind of noticing I, I seem to be struggling with what I would identify in someone else as signs of depression. So. Um, went to a counselor, went to a doctor, had some conversations, and would, was diagnosed with what's called seasonal affective disorder, which is a type of depression that manifests itself in the wintertime uh, when people live above, I think it's like 30 degrees latitude, um, which, which we're kind of well above that here where we are in North Georgia. Um, you know, so in, with that came this realization that this is, this is probably something I'm going to struggle through every winter tried a number of different things, tried some medication to try to make it better, I've done counseling, um, and, and some of those things have helped, but the reality is now, seven winters in, um, this thing comes along every winter. Mm-hmm. So I'd say probably winter four and winter five, you know, really struggling with it. Um, 
I started to really wonder and, and, and ask the question, man, it, is, is this the right thing for, for us to be here? Again, remember, I love this church. I love these people. One of the most wonderful church experiences I've yeah. ever been a part of, but the wintertime stink. And, um, you know, and I would say in the wintertime, it's been even so bad at times where, you know, where frankly, if, if you gave me an option on that day, <laughs> I'm running back to Florida, right? You know, I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I, you know I, I wanna be where it's warm and sunny um, and where I feel good, uh, you know, where I feel good internally, where I'm not struggling with depression irritability and, and, you know, all those other things where I'm not struggling with, with lethargy. Um, but, but I had this kind of radical, intense season of prayer about this um, a, a while back where, where I asked God, you know, hey, either fix me, teach me that your grace is enough, or, or take us somewhere else. Um, you know, and, and in wrestling with God that way, I mean, I, I had this time where I was, you know, even maybe asking for him to create another opportunity and, and take us somewhere else. And man, it was, you know, again, um, as well as I can hear the voice of God, uh, you know, I still don't know exactly what that looks like. Um, it was like God came through as loudly as I've ever heard him about something and said, right now I've got you where I want you. And if that changes, I'll let you know. Um, and so for me, you know, radical faithfulness to God has meant saying yes to being in the middle of a struggle every Mm -hmm. winter time, Mm -hmm. but trusting that God is good in the middle of that. And I will say, I mean, good news. I think he, things are better than they have been in previous winters for me. Um, But God continues to teach me as well that his grace is sufficient, just like he did with the apostle Paul and the thorn in the flesh. Um, you know, Jesus, Jesus says in, in Luke, uh, Luke 9, I believe, you know, he says, um, he says, if, if anybody wants to come after me, basically, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to follow me, what that means is you're going to take up your cross daily. You're going to have to deny yourself and then, then come follow me. So, so that's, I mean, he, he says this, da- this is a daily thing. The call to faithfulness is daily. Um, it's a daily thing for me, especially in the wintertime. It's a daily thing where I have to, again, say, um, I have to reaffirm this truth that faithfulness to God is more important than momentary happiness or momentary comfort. Um, and, and I think, you know, again, I'm, I'm not elevating myself in that. I, I really don't want to. Yeah. I don't want that to come across that way to anybody. So please don't hear me. Um, doing that in this because we all have something probably that is a thorn in the flesh, a part of the cross we bear. But in that, when we say yes to faithfulness, yeah, I, I look back and I can't imagine, Ben, what if at four years um, I had, because of my fleshly struggle, said we're pulling the plug on being here. And the last few years at Grace Chapel, in spite of the pandemic, have been fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and really what God is. has taught and revealed to us mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. walking with Him and being disciples who make disciples and what mission looks like and the purpose and value that that's brought to my life, I would have missed out on that probably. Yeah. You know, so it was faithfulness through adversity that led to this place with God that running away would, would just never have led to. 
You know, so again, I think that's, you know, that's what God is calling us into. But man, I'll tell you, I've gotten to share that story. I've had the opportunity to share that story with both believers in a way that I hope it strengthened their faith. And Mm -hmm. I know it has with some that I've shared with and they've shared that with me. Um, But I've I've had the chance to share that with unbelievers as well, with people who don't (laughs) follow Jesus. And, you know, so when we live in a way and we say there's something bigger than me, um, there's a, there is really, truly a better way. You know, we shared yesterday the story of Zacchaeus, uh, yesterday for us, the story of Zacchaeus who, who had wealth, he had power, he had position, but when he met Jesus, he knew all that was worth giving up because Jesus was the better way. You know, that's true for all of us, no matter what we face. For me, you know, in this season of life, it's, it's struggling through a difficulty that comes around once a year. Yeah. And one that can be pretty like, intense yeah. for Zacchaeus. It was money, wealth, power, fame. But here was Jesus offering a better way. You know, and so I guess, you know, the, the, the make it practical. You know, don't run away from the question. You know, what, what is standing in between you and embracing the better way of Jesus? What is it? Because the postmodern worldview, secular humanism, these flows, these streams of culture have had a real influence on us and may have placed a barrier between you and the better way of Jesus. Mm-hmm. So, so what part of that have you embraced that is keeping you from embracing fully the better way of Jesus? I love that. That's awesome, Paul. Thank you. Thank you for your vulnerability and just honesty in sharing that. And I think that really that really provides a helpful example of what that can look like, of what that radical faithfulness can look like. I appreciate that, Ben. I hope it is. Yeah. yeah, and thank you for just your your wisdom on this. It's been, it's been a good conversation. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I've enjoyed it. I, I awesome. hope these folks out here have too. Yes. Yeah, and we invite you to tune in again next week for our final part of this series, right? We're finishing this series on A Better Story. Yes, and uh, look forward to continuing with this conversation. I do want to just encourage you again that if you're enjoying this podcast, if this has been helpful for you, we would just love it if you would share this with other people. Let us know what you're thinking, and then also if you're watching this through a podcast app, Google mm-hmm. Podcasts, uh, watching this. If you're listening to it yeah. through Google Podcasts, Apple, or uh, Spotify. If you could write us a review, that would actually really help us out. Sure. Um, just with kind of you know bolstering this podcast a little bit, subscribe to it. That would uh, we'd really appreciate that. Absolutely. Yep. Awesome. Hey, well, thank you so much for tuning in, and uh, we'll look forward to talking to y'all again next week. <laughs>